Hello, welcome back to another episode of CrowdWorkCast. My name is Andrew Barnett. Thank you very much for joining me. Uh, this week's episode, I did something a little different. Uh, instead of sitting down with a comedian or uh, someone like that, I sat down with someone uh, who is a mate of mine, who I've known for about 10 years, who has absolutely nothing to do with show business, never has, never will, uh, other than he is a voracious uh, consumer of show business. He's, uh, he's actually one of the guys I, uh, I first started going along to comedy with. Uh, he and I uh, had that in common, and, um, and he was one of the two people I told I was going to try comedy, and uh, we talk a little bit about that story uh, in this episode. Uh, he's an interesting guy. He's a very interesting guy. He's probably got the best general knowledge of anyone I've ever met. Uh, he knows uh, something about uh, almost everything. Uh, I used to uh, I used to call him the font of all opinion um, instead of the font of all knowledge because uh, he basically he knew something about everything, but never had any real qualifications to back any of it up. So uh, yeah, he is a, he's a very interesting bloke. Uh, this was a very enjoyable chat, and uh, hopefully, if you like this, we might uh, I might get him on a few more times because he's a very easy guy to chat with. Um, he's sort of private guy, so he just goes just wants to go on the internet by the name of John. Uh, so uh, anyway, here it is. Uh, episode 21 with my mate John. All right, new episode. G'day, buddy. What's your name? My name's John. John. Uh, John, my old mate, John. I think you're the first one on this uh, podcast in a while that's not a comedian. And, uh, I'm and definitely not a comedian. Yeah, how not a comedian are you? You're exceptionally not a comedian. I'm one of the least funny people that I know. Yes, me too. Um, but I like hanging around you. Uh, for contrast, I seem much funnier. But, um, mate, you're, you're a comedy fan, though. That's uh, one of the uh, the earlier parts of our friendship. You and I used to go to a lot of comedy rooms together. You're, um, you, have you always been a big comedy fan? Uh, I guess I have. I uh... I've always enjoyed comedy, stand-up comedy in particular. I began kind of uh, watching it on TV uh, in the 80s when I was in high school and then uh, just uh, continued to watch it and then went, started going to see it live and then uh, we, we became friends at a point, I think, in the early 2000s. Is that a... Uh, Mid-2000s, I think. Is that... Um, is that 2050, the mid-2000s? That, yeah, I have trouble wondering about that anyway, myself. It, I was just thinking the same thing. All right, but it, it, yeah, mid-2000s. Mid okay, early 2000s if we take the uh, the century look at it. <laughs> yeah, all right, sorry. Very early 2000s if we look at on a millennial scale. That's uh... Yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, in the early uh, 2000s. And we began to, yeah, one of the first things we did was, uh, oh, not one of the first things, but something we eventually did and began to do quite frequently was go and watch uh, stand-up comedy, live yeah, stand-up comedy. You were, you were one of two uh, people who knew and actually attended my very first gig. Uh, I believe there were more than two people there. No, yeah. well, there was, yes, there was well more than two people there, but you were... Um, you were two people of, knew you. Yes, exactly. Right. Uh, there was two people I told that I was, um, that I was going to give it a go. Uh, one was uh, Steve and Casey, who uh, previous guests on the podcast, and now and the other was you, um, and uh, went along to uh, a little room called the Mike in Hand in Glebe. Yes, where we'd uh, we'd watch quite a bit of comedy. There it was we had to it's a it was convenient to us, and it's a it was a great room with a lot of and still has a lot of great comedians. Yeah. So, um, but do you want to? And I love telling this story, and I've seen you realise what the story is. 
uh, on your face. Do you want to tell the story of the advice you gave me right before I went on stage? Um, I, I, I'd like to hear your version because you get very upset at my version of the, the story. Uh, well, my version is that having uh, had, I have a number of friends and some of whom who have uh, tried stand-up comedy and I'll say, uh, aside from yourself, I'm going to say failed at it. And in, in at least one case, that was due to a particularly poor uh, performance on their first and only uh, uh, tr- attempt. They, uh, I think, so they the perform- by the performance you mean their the actual delivery um, let them down, rather than the uh, the content of what they were saying wasn't. That's correct. They, they had they had funny material. Um, the, I thought the jokes were good. And but they didn't have any stagecraft. They suffered a lot of nerves. They got up on stage. Their nerves got the better of them. And not having any kind of stagecraft and 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 basically having having had no experience, they did a pretty poor job. And that's a lot of pressure. And as you can imagine, they came off and the kind of having taken that hit, uh, their confidence was confidence was kind of blown. And after a, a week or two decided that there was uh, they'd never uh, weren't going to do it again and and to this date have never attempted it again and consequently are, are not stand-up comedians so you uh, so now can't... you've laid your justification right that's that's the, that's the context that's the, the context in which you were approaching yeah. your pep talk for me yes uh, prior to me going on stage for the very first time yeah. uh, I, I obviously I was I was nervous yeah. um, you probably recognize that having seen it in your your other friends who'd given stand-up comedy a go um, so what, what what was your pep so talk? what what I didn't know about you I'd known you for quite a while and I, th- I felt that I uh, did know you very well but what I didn't know <laughs> was that you were uh, uh, preternaturally lacking in self-consciousness and <laughs> 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 anyway, so yeah, being, fair enough being facetious um, so you were getting ready to go up and I thought you had like other friends I've had and in your case I thought you had had real potential you had had run a few of your ideas past me prior to the show and I thought they were all good and, and they all, all, all would work as jokes but I thought there was a very real probability, and oh, I mean, and I'll admit now I had that wrong. But I thought there was a, um, a, a quite a high probability that that you would fail on your first attempt. You'd get up, and nerves and other factors would yeah. would get the better of you. As and is I very very common. And and, and and you will know you've been in the scene a while now, and you know yeah. for first timers, this is actually a, a common phenomenon. Yes. But I liked your jokes, and I liked your style, so I wanted to make. I wanted to. To what I felt would be improve the odds that if 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 that night didn't go particularly well, that you would have another go. Yes. So you were getting ready to go up, and I said, I said I can't remember exactly, but paraphrasing, I said, "Where's the effect that stand-up comedy is hard, getting in front of an audience is hard. There's a high probability that you're going to get up there and it's going to be horrible. That you won't you won't get you'll get self-conscious. You won't get the laughs when you want them, and that, and that'll spiral out of control and." And it'll basically be a very, very painful five minutes. But that doesn't mean that you're not going to be a good stand-up comedian. That just means that you've got to come back, you learn something from that one and have another go next week or next month and build on that. That is the pep talk that I gave you before you went up on stage. No, not before, right before I went up on stage. And uh, I'm going to tell you that you, it sounded a lot more reasonable to now when you say it. I remember it much more like, listen, listen, you're going to go up there, you're going to tell your jokes, they're good jokes, 
but there's a very like it's probable that no one's going to laugh, and you just got to plow through, and don't worry that they're not laughing, okay? Because stand up is hard, and look, you're probably you're probably not going to get any laughs tonight. Well, that that may be what I said. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was meant in that spirit. But I do understand, oh, uh, in hindsight, that uh, that probably wasn't the best pep talk to give someone who was about to go on stage. I'm fully aware of that. I, I love, because you love rugby league, I'd love to see you as a coach. Look, guys, there's you know, a real chance. You know, I was a coach. Be... You know, I was a coach for a couple of years. Oh, you <laughs> were too, with your kids' side. Yes. And that was very similar to the pep talks I gave the boys. Look, look at them. Look at them. See them warming yep. up. They're bigger than us. They're stronger than us. Quite frankly, that coach knows more about the game than I do. That was very similar to the kind of talks I gave the boys before they ran on. That's Yeah, you are... Um... You're not a halfback. You're not cut out to be a halfback. You're only slightly more than a halfback than everyone else in the team. So you're going to be the halfback. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And uh, yeah, you're not... Uh, fair to say you're not part of the self-esteem movement that's uh, gone through parenting. Uh, <laughs> that'd be fair to say. <laughs> oh, man. But my kids are working out all right. Yeah, it's against all odds. I I credit that mostly to your wife, to be honest. That may be true. Yeah. Um. So you're a you're a Sydney local. Yes. Born and proud, and uh, as we touch, as I just touched on, then you're a big NRL fan. Yes. You want to reveal which club? Uh, the Bulldogs. The Bulldogs. The Canterbury yeah. Banks Down Bulldogs. And uh, your team, I'll point out. My team, no. Uh, my team, my friend, are the Newcastle Knights. <laughs> Where do you uh, live? Yeah, I live in the Canterbury Bankstown Bulldogs uh, area, um, but uh, so do you. But you grew up in this area, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I I grew up about two blocks away from where I currently live. I uh, love not... that because I grew up in the country, and and you'll often talk to me about me being a country boy. But that is the most country thing um, I think uh, I I think that a person can do is live within a within that small radius. Um, which I think in Sydney too, I think you're probably the last generation of people that's going to be able to do that. Yeah, that's true. And it, in fact, uh, it wasn't common uh, even when I was uh, doing. I was one of the benefits was uh, the area I grew up in, Belmore, is um, has a uh, at the time was a lower socioeconomic area. Com- comparatively, it wasn't. Yeah, I don't want to exaggerate that, but it meant that the that when it, when I was in the in the nineties, uh, when I was um, in a position to buy a home that I could actually buy a home in my area, unlike today where no area in Sydney is affordable. No. So no matter where you grow up in Sydney, you're unlikely to be um, in your, you know, you're unlikely to be in your uh, uh, early 30s uh, with a deposit that would stand you to, to buy but, a home yeah, in your area. Where you can buy a buy a house down the road from where you grew up. It's, um yeah, it's sad because I kind of like that, that feeling of, you know, you've, I've, like... You, uh, you're someone who's got a lot of, um, uh, well, you see your Belmore through uh, somewhat rose-coloured glasses, I'd say. <laughs> Very fond of where I live. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and right near the uh, the old home ground of the yes, the Bulldogs. Uh, within, uh, I can look out my backyard and I can see the stadium. That's fair. Do you miss the games? Like I know they played a couple of games there last year. I, I do go and I do go and enjoy the the one or two games that they uh, in recent years have been playing there. That's a lot of fun, and I do miss the uh, uh, the regular games. When I was a boy, at half time, this is a, a different era. At half time, they just used to open the gates, and you could wander in or out, and uh, I would wander in. So I never paid for many games when I was a boy, but uh, I'd often ride up just to time it with a chain my bike to the fence and walk through the gates at half time, watch half a game of first grade rugby league. Oh, that's fantastic. Who, who were the players back then that you were um, you were following around? 
Uh, it was uh, obviously the Mortimer brothers, uh, Dr. George Paponis, probably still my favourite player of all time. Dr. George? Yeah. Did he, um, did he practice in your area? Uh, I, I think he... Uh, embarrassed I don't know. I think he, he might have in the uh, St. George area, maybe around, I'm going to say Arncliffe. That's probably wrong. Probably got that. I probably totally mangled that. So no, not he wasn't a it wasn't a doctor in uh, in Bill. Although my GP was the team doctor. Yeah, see that's the, the I, Doctor, I, I Doctor kinda, Hugh Hazard. He's I kind of miss a bit long of that. since retired. It, but they um shout out to you. Uh, <laughs> he was so your local doctor was the team doctor. My actual doctor was the team doctor. That wasn't uh, by planning. That was just where. Did he uh, have the magic spray in in the surgery? <laughs> no, but he's uh, um, but he's. Now, he didn't smoke, but his, uh, it was two good, two doctors ran the surgery and the other. And if he wasn't in, I had to see the other doctor. An enduring uh, memory that I have is that he was a smoker and there would invariably be a lit cigarette in an ashtray on the table, on the desk of the doctor who was uh, was treating me, which is something you don't see these Who was listening to your chest going, deep breath in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. correct. Now, something's playing up with your asthma. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's correct. That is... That is something you think about how much how much just society's turned around on a few issues. Like people, you talk about social progress and, you know, like yeah. uh, people, uh, you know, oh, back in the day, back in the day. But really smoking is one of those massive issues because it wasn't that long ago that um, that like yeah, just everyone smoked. Oh, it was and so they common. smoked all the time. When I started uh, work for Canterbury Council in uh, 1990 and they had secretaries. That's another thing that's gone. We'll leave that out, but they had the secretaries and they sat in one section of the office. and for In the uh, typing pool? In the typing pool. And I'm picturing uh, Mad Men style. Uh, not at all. It was <laughs> an open plan office and we were, we were all equally uh, ground down. It wasn't... Uh, <laughs> There were no, no I, I alpha males like, amongst us. I like um, the look of you. I like the thought of you. Uh, I didn't have a suit either. Second day of work, <laughs> ground down. I feel like you were born First day down. of work. Um, but uh, for some reason, there were a lot of smokers amongst the... Uh, there were smokers throughout the workforce, but there were a lot amongst the secretaries and they sat in one section of the open plan office. And I it was it did not... Uh, uh, caused me any concern, alarm, or confusion to look down their end of the office and see a smoke haze. Yeah, that was just a fact of coming to work. Just normal part of life. Normal part of life. I, I remember I had a friend who was telling me there's a from um, she, there's a photo from when she was born and it would have been the sort of oh, probably the early early to mid seventies and um, of just a photo of, of the maternity ward and all the mums sitting there like there was half of them were smoking in the maternity ward. <laughs> That, that was just perfectly life. normal. I was un, unusual. I came from a, a family that um, an immediate family that didn't smoke, and even amongst my extended family, very few smokers. There were one or two. Mm. Now there's none. Um, but well, that, that was right. No, <laughs> no, some of them still alive. They've subsequently quit. But um, but there were few. Uh, that was not normal. I would go to my friends' uh, houses frequently, as kids do, and smoking was so common. And in fact, my even though. As I just said, my immediate family didn't smoke, and no one in my and few people in my extended family smoked. Um, we had ashtrays on hand at home, and not not buried in the back of the cupboard. They were they could be bought out at a moment's notice because anyone who was visiting, it, it was reasonably assumed that they may be a smoker. That's um yeah, that's interesting too. Now, like because people used to smoke in their car, like cars had 
ashtrays. Yes. Yeah, there was Planes a... had ashtrays. Yes. yes. That's the one that gets me. The idea that there was a smoking and non-smoking section of a plane as though or there's bring some... the same air. Yeah. <laughs> as though it's not being recirculated. It's yes. ridiculous. Um, but I think, um, you, yeah, the big cultural change, and I, I've just, I've got kids, as you know, they're uh, in the young young teenagers and um, and a bit younger, and we've recently watched the Ghostbusters movies, the fir- the two, um, oh, yeah. the, you know, Dan Aykroyd, the, Bill Murray. The, yep. the original ones. The original you ones. You, you wouldn't watch the... Uh, no, we watched We actually one. went and saw the, the new one. We loved a misogynist it. like you wouldn't... Uh, <laughs> we went and saw it. We thought it was great. I can't believe how much controversy there was around that. That was, <laughs> was a non. That was one of those controversies in inverted commas. There was no controversy. Oh, the the idea too. Oh, are you ruining my childhood? Oh. Yeah, this one's not for your childhood, <laughs> no, idiot. Yes, for my kids' childhood. Yes, exactly. But um, but we watched the original ones. Yeah. Uh, one, a week, uh, we watched them a week apart, but obviously they were made five or six. Actually, I don't actually know if to Google that, but no, but five yeah. or six or years apart. Um, first movie. It, all the characters. I think Venkman has a cigarette hanging out of his mouth in practically every scene, and and a lot of the characters smoke, and uh, and the kids comment on it because that's something they don't they don't uh, see every day. Second film made a f- whatever it was period later, hardly there are I wouldn't say there's not no smoking, but hardly any smoking compared to the the first film, and that's the Hollywood reflecting the the cultural change that was uh, yeah that's, that was underway. That's it. I because it's gone a long way past that now, and I and I've heard I heard this. I heard a story. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the Monuments Men. Uh, you remember that movie? Yeah, the I know Monuments the movie, Men. Yep. Um, actually, aired with its rating had a warning that it contained historical smoking. No, that's real because my daughter points these things out to me. Uh, this is the what's coming in warnings, and I don't really object to that. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. The 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 thought that teenagers or young or impressionable minds would would turn to smoking because they saw uh, George Clooney and uh, Matt Damon. Actually, it was Matt Damon, isn't it? Uh, and Matt Damon smoking in a film about, about saving art pieces during World War II. The, like, the thought that young, young and impressionable ones are watching that, that movie <laughs> is another matter. But uh, but then again, fair, fair warning. Some parents might want to uh, oh, mate, might want to talk about it with their kids. Realistically, the higher risk is someone who, uh, an older person, someone in their 60s or 70s, watches the movie, enjoys it, and remembers how much they enjoyed smoking and takes it up again. What are, you know, <laughs> Yeah. That's, a, that's the that's the greater risk, I think. I don't well, think kids are looking at what they see as old men. Just I didn't going, actually yeah. think of that. Now, now I now I'm convinced that war, that warning was necessary. I didn't I didn't consider <laughs> that scenario you just outlined. Oh man, you are you're a film buff too, aren't you? I like to watch movies. A yeah. film buff, that does. Film buff. <laughs> I watch movies. You you still because you used to when we first met you were watching at least you were getting to the movies at least once a week. Are you still on that rate or what are you doing? No, I, up until recently I was just. Um, I think I go through periods of just not going to see as many movies, and I'm in one of those phases now. But it, that's, and that's is that driven by lack of interest? Um, it. No, I think there's always. Interesting films. So the last film I saw was um, um, uh, Patterson, uh, directed by um, uh, the guy down by law. The guy's name always escapes me. Uh, but anyway, but, um, yeah, that one some guy. months ago. <laughs> um, but uh, any good? Yeah, I thought it was really good. What's that about? Patterson? So, well, that's oh I'm man, I don't see enough films. I guess it's a low key film, uh, not. Like high energy, which is why I kind of why I do it because a lot of the films that I that come uh, through the cinemas now, obviously, are all uh, which I enjoy. So I'm not I'm not yeah. um, 
saying that these, there's anything wrong with this, but are uh, a high energy kind of high special effects kind of event films. This is a, a low key film about a, a uh, young uh, man who um, who drives a bus and, and he's married in a small town called Patterson. In I don't know much about American geography. I'm going to say New Jersey, but I, I don't I don't know where that town is. But uh, wet New Jersey? That's a state. No, no, in. Patterson, oh, Patterson. The town of Patterson. I'd get, I dare say there's more than one Patterson. But I think in this one, I think this one in the film might be in New Jersey. But you know what I like to say? I like to do this. I like to go Patterson, New Jersey. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but it doesn't. That doesn't matter. Sick is Patterson, Idaho. Doesn't. No, it doesn't like, have yeah, a ring. Doesn't have a ring have to, the it. Ring to it. But anyway, this is a like an industrial, a formerly industrial town that's kind of run down, and he, he he's a bus driver. He lives a kind of uh, uh, modest life there, and he and he and he writes poetry. And it, it's oh, uh, if his first name is Banjo. <laughs> no, no. His first name is Patterson. Ah, the um, uh, the film is uh, kind of a um, a meditation on creativity, or po- uh, uh, poetry, and and there's um, there's some poetry again. I wish I remembered, but written by a poet that's used in the film as uh as being written by the character yep and um there's reflections on uh on how that's that process which which are interesting there's a real this is really subtle but there's a there's a subtle undercurrent to it of um of the the shrinking or the fading of american industrialism so the main character it's a contemporary film certainly contemporary times but the main character and you barely you don't quite pick this up at first but then as the film progresses you begin to notice it more and more he has a whole lot of um he carries a whole lot of uh artifacts or on him or of america so he carries like those old-fashioned lunch pails that would have been made in america he has like um um some of the clothing he wears is kind of the kind of stuff like a make america great again hat no no nothing like <laughs> Doesn't go down that path. That is a symptom of the of what we're talking about. It's, yeah. it's, it's not. It's most certainly not going down there. He does but, chant "Locker Up" quite we, a bit. <laughs> one of his poems. It's called "Locker Up." <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> no, it was not. Uh, that that's it. That um, that's. I mean, the film. That's what you're talking about is a symptom of uh, oh yeah of, of what this that. film is addressing. But this is the, this is a more kind of thoughtful thing, and then. And possibly some some thought on, on how that relates to, to art and the creation of of art, um, which which I found interesting and, and I like to think I saw it with a couple of people. As that's the best way to see films, and afterwards it generated a lot of discussion around around those issues. And, and not to say those discussions didn't eventuate in uh, talking about making America great again and yeah, uh, things like that. <laughs> it's probably different um, coming from different, a different angle. Yeah, with a different with a different. Uh, with different a different set of end goals probably in mind other yeah. than self-aggrandizement. Yeah. So what else, like have you seen many of the Oscar noms for this, this I don't year? think I have, which might be a rare. I, I, I don't do you know the list? I don't know the list. All I know Jim Jarmusch by the way directed Patterson. It really frustrates me that I didn't remember that. <laughs> Thanks I, for letting me get that out. I knew I knew you'd uh, <laughs> you'd get there in the end. Um no, cuz this is another year like I find now, because they're nominating up to 10 for like best picture and that sort of stuff, uh, more and more um, I'm less interested in a lot of the movies that are that are uh, being nominated for things because I, I, like, they're just not. I, I find that there's certain worthy films yeah, that... that get nominated for, for different reasons. I'm fascinated that um, I, I think we've discussed this uh, off, off air that Mel Gibson... Has been nominated <laughs> for Hacksaw Ridge. 
<laughs> which is uh, like if you want to be able to say you're good at your job, that's an achievement for him to be nominated. Because as as we've discussed, it wasn't that long ago he was well persona non grata. Yeah, he was a, very justifiably so. Yes, a pariah. Like he uh, justifiably so. Yeah. But there are people that now now he's uh, he's so good at his job as a director that uh, people will say I like him as a director. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's a level of uh, of achievement which uh, you were in earlier in the week were telling me was a. The Mel Gibson uh, level of uh, yeah, I, that's of success. I, that's my new uh, that's my new goal. I want to be Mel Gibson good at something. Um, but it's uh, <laughs> yeah. no, so I know. Have you seen Hacksaw Ridge? That's I, I have not. Uh, it I probably enjoy it because I do uh, I do enjoy Mel Gibson f- films. It's just annoying that I have to yeah. apologise for that. Yes. Um, but it's one of those things. It's one of those jobs where you can like him as a director. Yeah, not as a person. Yeah. Um, you hit on something there about worthy films being uh, uh, worthy, which are in the um, like having an issue and then being around that issue and mm. and 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 coming from maybe a a too oh we some would say uh, a too narrow perspective being a problem uh, with some of the, the nominations. I kind of get that because I I um, that can annoy me about uh, about films, but I would. Um, I would say that you have to be I, I not you I have to be careful about that because sometimes I build a preconception about a film that is is worthy in inverted commas like um, a few years ago Twelve Years a Slave uh, had uh, I didn't see that for a while I did see it before its cinema run in but I held off seeing it for a while and this is two competing fears about the film and and one was that it might be laid in that kind of worthiness that we're talking about mm. uh, which 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 can do, I find can find distracting from it as a, as, a, as an artistic from an artistic perspective, and then the other thing was I thought it might be so harrowing. So on the one hand, I was afraid it would be yeah. it would be too harrowing and, and that I wouldn't be able to enjoy it. Because and you'd feel guilty as a white man, yeah, all all of that. But um, <laughs> and also even forget even stepping beyond that, just engaging with the characters, and then I would find that their their struggle um, uh, so um, uh, exhausting that I wouldn't that the film would be emotionally there too are, heavy for me yeah there are films that are hard work yeah. like there's films i've seen before that i'm like okay like it's hard to say you enjoyed it but you you took it in yeah you experienced what you were supposed to experience but you don't ever want to watch it it's a good film it's well done but you don't ever want to have to go through that again yeah um, and yeah much like i mean i i'm sure that's uh you know much how the guy who was uh the subject of 12 years a slave felt himself Oh, yeah, that's uh, not yeah. even worth. It. Have you have you seen the film? Yeah, no, I haven't. Oh, it, uh, it, uh, now this one I'm getting to. Uh, it's a, it's an extraordinary film. It is, it is brilliant. Now it is harrowing, so I won't. It didn't. Yeah, yeah. Not saying that, but it, it, it uh, I would have uh, if I had not seen it cinematically, and then I'd waited, and then someone had convinced me ten years down the track, and I'd gone to, and, and seen it on some other way. I guess by instantaneous download. That mm-hmm. uh, no doubt, uh, I'd be very annoyed with myself for not having uh, not not having seen it because it, it, it was it was just uh, just an absolutely tremendous film, and it's so uh, so uh, rich in in things to think about and, and kind of and while extra- extraordinarily harrowing, also um, uh, had um, and like an exploration of the, of the human endurance and, and the human. Uh, ability to to absorb suffering and to kind of overcome it, which obviously 
um, he had a way out because he wasn't a slave and, and there was mm. a resolution for him. So, you know, despite that, I don't want to say it's a positive film because despite that, obviously, he, he was able to leave his situation. But um, all the people around him were not. So it's, it's, yeah. not, it's not overly a positive film. I'm not, I'm not implying it. Well, it depends that. on perspective. Because if you, if you, for me and you looking at his situation, going, he spent 12 years as a slave, we both go, geez, that's horrible. But for someone who spent their whole life as a slave, they'd look at that and go, wow. He was lucky. Yeah, yeah. good for him. But, um, but anyway, that yeah, I don't yeah, I don't think we should get down. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't want to go down explore that, that road either. A but, path of comedy, but uh, yeah, but I just mean as a film, as an example of a film that that had that kind of worthy yes uh, brand attached to it, which, which kind of uh, for me, like you indicated, you sometimes balk out. Well, I definitely do, and and I've seen many films that are in that category, and and that um, desire to be worthiness on the part of the filmmakers. Uh, um, reduces the overall artistic uh, quality of the film to the point where I don't enjoy it. But uh, but you've got to see the film first to be able to judge that. And yeah, exactly. And that so so don't yeah. My point being, don't let necessarily let you let that prevent you. People you trust come to you and say, "I've just seen that film and it's great." Push those other concerns out of your mind. And just go and enjoy the film. Yeah, it's weird. I I just noticed in the last couple of years, and I don't know if it's just this is just perspective or it's actually something that's happening. Is I feel like the the big movies you hear about all year aren't getting nominations in the same way as they used to. Like, there's always these. It's all like it seems to be. There's a few smaller films that are that are. Um, on a on a worthy topic, or are uh, artistically smaller, or more a character study, or a or that that sort of film, rather than like you look at some of the bigger films. Like, did, did Sicario get any nods in the last few years? I don't think it did, but it would have been seen as a genre films, and traditionally genre films don't. Um... But see, that's what that's what I mean. Like the ones that are the films that are actually it was a great film, by the way. But it, yeah, but it was, but, but it, was it was quintessentially a genre film, and. Consequently, not the type of film that would be that you would expect these days. In the I think in the past, those kind of films have, but certainly not in, the, in recent mm. recent times. Generally, uh, I guess without oh. so people will point out exceptions, of course. But uh, yeah, oh, the question I've got for you, John, is is Hollywood out of touch? No, I think what the, the phenomenon you've identified is is Hollywood's probably Hollywood's efforts to expand its diversity, um, which is, is is worthwhile ultimately. Um, because you know that in recent years there's been a lot of criticism about the diversity in in the nominations, and so they're probably seeking to have the Academy Awards be more reflective of uh, of, of a, a more diverse culture, and, and that's appropriate. And then there may be teething as they try to accommodate that diversity, they may not make the best decisions. All of that's possible. So I'm not saying that everything they do in the name of that's going to yeah. going to be ideal, but but ultimately the project is the, the project is worthy. And See. Personally, like, and I, I, I take all that in, and I, there's, I don't actually disagree with it. But personally, I feel like just with, with any, and maybe this is the, the competitive nature in me, and the, the that comes from like, like the way I look at any sort of competition, the same way you look at your sports. sporting background. Yes, exactly. My, uh, my glorious sporting background of. Uh, yeah. Playing some serious second grade field hockey. There is um, no event at the Olympics called a hundred meters sprint for slow runners. <laughs> no. There's not. <laughs> I'd be a gold medalist. Oh, yeah. Where? Well, actually, how do you win that? Oh, I, I no. don't know. As it's a... confusing as to. <laughs> All right. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. No, but I like. I'd like to think that they just. I, I like purity in competition. Like just the the but best. Sport film. lends itself to purity, and and uh, artistic endeavors 
Don't. Do not. Well, and my objection's not not so much. Um, look, I, and I don't really care about the, like if they if that if that is the project of widening diversity. There's some great genre films. Like if you're doing a genre film and you execute it perfectly, then then that should be. Oh, you won't get an argument. I love genre films. Yes. Like, you now I like. I like uh, what they might refer to as artistic films. When I was a boy, they were called art house films. I love that term, but I don't hear. I don't think people use that anymore. Probably art house. Yeah, because there are no art house cinemas. But anyway, yes, that's another, another matter. Um, and then there are films um, uh, that are purely purely genre uh, films. And I like all. I mean, I, I like a whole wide range. I like a wide range of films. I'm mm. constantly, constantly surprised by the films that I enjoy. And then sometimes my films I don't enjoy, but. Um, but what did you watch last night with? Because oh, we had a conversation last night, and you were just about to watch a film with the kids. I enjoyed it. I don't think it got a very good rap. I think it did all right at the box office. That was uh, Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. That I enjoyed that film too. It was just good fun. Yep. It was a clever idea. It was well executed, and, and Tom Cruise, who has um, a lot of uh, faults baggage. and things, baggage. <laughs> no, it's great yes. baggage. That's what I was looking for. But he can deliver in a certain kind of role and yes. that is the kind of role he, he – I just watched him in a few scenes. He had a couple of scenes uh, He's with, with Brendan Gleeson who is um, a phenomenal actor but in that film doing nothing. Uh, yes. He's just as a cardboard cutout is what he's doing there. But, um, but Tom Cruise, again, he's a cardboard cutout as well but he has a way of he, – he has a way of, um, of living that, that cardboard cutout that uh, that is engaging to, to audiences. That's well, something he obviously wor- he has a knack for. He worked out a long time ago, and he's just keeps yeah. Doing there's it. an intensity to yeah. that, but age will beat him. Yeah, uh, I don't know. He's running he, pretty hard from it. He's, he's over fifty, isn't he? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, 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 but he don't, like he's this he's this vague, non-specific kind of anywhere between thirty to forty-five age, which is yep. perfect for those films. But I think he's already out of that age bracket. Oh he's yeah, just, he's, he's just he'd hanging be well over forty. But yeah, he, uh, he'd have to be around fifty, I'd imagine. Yeah, um, and that's yeah. It's uh, I guess he's having. I don't know how these things work. I have no insight into into Hollywood and that. But would he'd be having plastic surgery. Is that what we'd assume? Yeah, I well, I all I know is um, uh, he is part of a religion that's incredibly litigious. <laughs> and uh, I don't, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I don't, I don't know that he's having plastic surgery and I'm not saying he's had plastic surgery. I'm just saying that's the type of thing that a, uh, someone in Hollywood at, at his age, mm. that's something we, we would assume in, mo- in, in many cases may well have happened. Yes. Well, yeah. A, a hypothetical actor of his... Caliber. Caliber and history and age. Yeah, that's what you'd, that's what you'd assume. Yeah, it's, like, it's, I, I, look, I, I'm not even convinced. Like, I hear lots of talk. That, uh, about another uh, member of that same religion, um, John Travolta. I've heard lots of talk that his hair isn't actually naturally jet black anymore. Um, <laughs> no, that couldn't be true. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not even going to go out there. Like I, I've got a podcast to protect. All right, this is a this is a brand I'm building. I don't need to to draw the ire of the litigious people. No, no. Um, but yeah. So I mean, often when I was younger, I've grown out of this, but uh, kind of a bit envious of movie stars and things like that. But uh, I really don't want a job where you have to have surgery to uh, to keep it. To keep it? Yeah, no. Not uh, of any not kind. that kind of surgery. I mean, like, yeah. Fair enough if like you blow your knee out and your, oh, your yeah, job yeah, involves you having to walk. Correct. All right. Yeah, yeah correct. Yeah. So we'll call it uh, unnecessary. unnecessary. Unnecessary surgery. Yeah, so you'd still you'd still take a career as a rugby league player. Uh, I would have, but they wouldn't have. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
But that's what I'm saying. It's it's no, it's the, you've still uh, you, you've got the jealousy there yeah. for them. Slow running wasn't my only inadequacy. It was, yeah. uh, there was some, some catching and passing was also uh, and reading the game and a, yeah, <laughs> an amazingly slow sidestep. Yes, in fact, <laughs> a slow worked, saunter actually the, worked um, in your favour a couple of times, didn't it? You, it did. You'd start the sidestep. <laughs> yes. They they go completely overreact. They go, oh my god, he's he still running the same line near as far as I thought he was. <laughs> that actually happened. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you were the one that told me your first ever try and only try. My only try. Where, where was that? Tell me that <laughs> story. <laughs> it was in a, a church social touch football game. <laughs> and I was Let having... Me guess, you ran around one of the other dads. No. I, uh, I was having a... I'm also not fit as well as on top of all those other... Uh, and I was having a bit of a spell out on the wing. And uh, I don't know. And I, I literally wasn't paying attention. And the uh, the ball came to me. Uh, I caught the ball and looked in front of me, and saw uh, two um, I don't know they're eight to ten year olds. <laughs> and uh, now any decent uh, human being would have just uh, run up and, and taken a taken a tip and uh, and let the game proceed. But what I saw behind them was the try line. <laughs> <laughs> Never having scored a try in my life in any form of the game, I ran a lazy S through those two 10-year-olds and dived over the score <laughs> to score my only try. <laughs> At a church picnic. Yes. <laughs> this is not like, At a church like... that I wasn't even a member of. I was a guest of a guest. <laughs> a guest of a guest. So you... You literally, you've you've thought I'm the ringer here. Yeah, <laughs> this is why I'm here. Yeah, to score the try and make sure we win. Uh, it wasn't about that. It was personal. It was. Like, I've never scored a try in any form of the game before, and now here's an opportunity. There is a decent human thing to do, which is to uh, allow the kids to uh, to make a tip. Yeah. Look, you looked or at them. A... You looked at them, and you went, "Yeah, sure, they're ten year olds." But I was a ten year old once, and that ten year old had a dream. Yeah. <laughs> that dream was to <laughs> score, score a try. try. I've been sitting on this longer than they've been sitting on the dream. To that's get, more or less the calculus me. that I that I. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, uh, I wasn't looked on too kindly by uh, other participants. Yeah, how many more of those church picnics did you go to? <laughs> uh, none from memory. Yeah, well, they don't want winners at their church picnics, mate. Yeah. Anyway, that's. Uh... Oh man. So um, yeah. So you mentioned early on that you were uh, worked at Canterbury Council. Uh, yeah. What was your role there? This is a fascinating job. Uh, I worked in the library there. In the library, yeah. So. I think we're building a picture of a human being here for all the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> you worked in the, What was your job title? Because uh, well, this is a job title I'm pretty sure a lot of people don't realise exists. Oh, well, this has existed in the 90s. I, I, uh, but anyway, uh, I was a library technician. Library technician. Uh, another friend of ours used to was very fond of calling you a book welder. He, he randomly pl- plucked that uh, term out of the uh, ether, I think. But uh, that was actually something uh, that was that is, book welding was uh, was actually a, a job that existed. Or, or he may have known that when he when he was throwing that around. It was um, so so hardback books. Sometimes the uh, the leaves, the pages will yep. will come uh, away from the cover. From the and there was, yeah, and there was a um, a machine and a, a, you could buy this um, this glue um, that came in solid solid form, but you would uh, you could, and it came in strips that could be cut down to the right dimensions. And you would place it inside the thing, and then you you would you would reorganise the leaves, the pages correctly, and then you would it was a way that they were kind of um, compressed a bit, and they would, and heat was applied, and they were uh, like put back in to the book, and that was that was called book welding. And these days, with the 
low cost of books and imported books and all that and the and online and all the other stuff are I think those books just get thrown out now so that's a uh, that's a profession that uh, is probably no longer gone with us. by the wayside gone by the wayside uh, but, I tell you that'll be back in Trump but that wasn't America. that wasn't what I did well, so you so the, the, the book welder at Canterbury Council when I was there was a just forget his name, but it was an older fellow, uh, wheelchair, wheelchair bound, but it was a job that he could do. Um, and yeah, didn't uh, he could do perfectly well. You didn't need to say older fellow, I assumed, uh, <laughs> when you were working at the library that everyone was old, uh, by you. How oh, old were you when you started at the library? Uh, 20. 20. Yeah. Wow, that, that do, do you reckon it caused a stir? Like, amongst it, I, I'm just picturing the other employees, like, oh, I see this young buck coming here wanting to change things. Uh, you know, I didn't want to change too much, so no, I don't know that agree that. But uh, no, so libraries are tiered. I think that's what you're alluding to. So yes. I was a lot, I ended as a library teacher, but when I, st- I applied for and the first position I had uh, was at, a, at a, in another band. So libraries have three bands of employment, M- and member. I was a, uh, oh, four. <laughs> bands. Get your membership card. <laughs> All right, four that's, bands. That was the first one. The people that actually that's get as paid. As far as I went in the library, by the way, people who get paid at the library yep. had uh, in those days, and, and may may still, but I'm not as connected to libraries as I used to be, but. Other than as a member. Well, the internet exists. Who needs to be? Oh, I still go down to the local library. Everyone should. Um, the uh, There was uh, library assistants. There yes. was no qualification. There was someone off the street like myself could apply for a job and uh, and, and get one. See now, off the street, you say that. I've, I've actually, I don't know if you've visited a library recently, there's there's a few people who look like they, uh, they're off the street in there just using the internet. or The air conditioning often. The air often. conditioning. That was, that's yeah. always been the case. Yeah. We had air conditioning at Canterbury Library. And they got a title, those people. <laughs> assistant. <laughs> Stop it. Library. <laughs> oh, so library assistant, no qualification required. Yep. Then there was... Um, uh, library technician, which you could become one of two ways, although uh, the, the main way was by going to TAFE and getting a, a TAFE certificate. Um, and I, I had friends that were library technicians. I was at the library for a number of years and my boss... <laughs> what, very, what circle were you moving in? When the, my uh, boss kindly uh, promoted me to library technician, which is the other way through experience. Oh, uh, field recogn- promotion. Field pro- uh, recognition That's of that. prior learning and, and on-the-job experience, I think is uh, the, yeah, uh, yeah. the term. Um and then, which is as high as I got, then you could go to university and either get a postgraduate um, diploma or a, um, or you could do a degree um, course in library and information sciences and you could be a librarian, uh, which is, uh, which I never was. Can I ask the question? But a, a lot of my friends who I started with as library assistants are now librarians. I've got, I have, uh, one of my friends is in the uh, New South Wales Parliamentary Library and another good friend of mine is in the State Library of... Uh, of, uh, of New South Wales. Okay, two things on this. First off, I'm going to ask the question, I think most people listening to this not familiar with the stratification of their library and the re- yeah, the, requisite, uh, the requisite qualifications. Why does one need a degree to be a librarian? Uh, that, uh, it's easy to explain. So it's changed. So now it's moved over really focused on information sciences, which is kind of... Com- computer science or the way computers manage information yep. and I think you could easily understand the level of degree type of knowledge and professionalism that's required around that. Um, historically, it would it was about uh, classification and, um, uh, and then breadth of knowledge because one of the functions of the library is to acquire uh, – when I was there, it's changed now. It's very different now. But when I was there, it was about books and journals. And it was uh, – so it was. Fe- it's felt that you need a, a breadth of 
a breadth of an education that provides a breadth of knowledge where you can go out into the marketplace of ideas if you want and you can select the the best material the, the most representative material to be reflected in your library so i understand it and then there's a second level is you need a breadth of that professional knowledge to to classify that library because a library is only any information system and a library is an information system is only as good as as the ability of people to draw information back out of it and if we just bought all the books and piled them up in the middle of a room and said to people when they came through the door well there it is have a go uh you can see that's next to useless uh whereas if they're you know as uh, they're laid out in, a, in an organized and formal system such as the dewey decimal decimal system the system used in the library where i worked and probably the most common uh, commonly used system in the english-speaking world uh for the classification of uh, non-fiction books uh that's useful. So people can come in, they can ask a question, and even if the libra librarian doesn't have knowledge about that specific question, they can take the person to the relevant area of the library to find the information they need. Now, you touched on the Dewey Decimal System. I did a gig uh, a few weeks ago where a guy in the audience was a librarian, and he said they weren't using... He was a librarian at a school. They weren't using the Dewey Decimal System anymore. Oh, what system did he say they were using? Uh, believe it or not, I had about 150 other people. They'd um, all be anxiously <laughs> yeah. on the edge of their seats waiting for the answer to yeah. that question. And I wanted them to come back to the next month's show. So I just left that one as a cliffhanger. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I know. As curious as there I are was. Other, there always have been other systems. I'll just, I will just say that. There are some simpler systems and some... Um, uh, so the Dewey Decimal System has some flaws in that it's uh, created in America, so from the American system. So, so issues of American culture and American um, uh, history, etc., um, have a, a large range of numbers. Whereas when you move outside of America, the the, the range of numbers is less. And so when you come to like a, into Australian, a, Australia history. History, Australian history, it's got to, kind of got to be squeezed into a, a, a smaller area. And what is that area? Oh, I'm going to say nine, this is a long time ago, and you know how long ago it was. Yeah. I mean, this is Australian say, history right here. Uh, nine, nine, nine fours, I think it was. Nine, nine fours. Am I able to get on my phone and quickly Google yeah. that? <laughs> Google that. That'll drive you nuts <laughs> until until you do. But um, yeah, well, what I was going to say, though, there were workarounds, which was what you could do is there were areas that your library didn't specialise in, and so the ranges of numbers that you were underutilising and you could squeeze, um, you could squeeze more, uh, more in, you, like you could use those ranges, and that was something that libraries would do. So what with, um, so you were at um, which library? You were uh, Canterbury Council. Canterbury Council, Canterbury City Library it was then, uh, or Canterbury Municipal Library, and then again Canterbury City Library, and now it would be a branch of Canterbury Bankstown LGA. Yes. Um, which is uh, the uh, that would be the uh, the one I have a membership card for. Um, so what was, you said, so there was some things that your library was, had a specialty in, some things they weren't. What, what sort of thing would your library have been a specialty in? Uh, so we, we had, so just in the city metropolitan areas, local libraries would share specialty because there's an interlibrary loan service. So yep. you would, you would, all those libraries would, would, would hope to be generalists. They'd hope to have a good broad range. So GPs, they're the GPs of library. Yeah. Yeah. Compared, as compared to some academic libraries, which were very focused. Yep. Um, but then to enhance the overall collection of books across Sydney, um, there was a system of, uh, and may well still be in place, of different libraries focusing on different topics and, Unfortunately for me, because that's just not a field that I was particularly interested in, um, cookbooks and cooking was a uh, was, was a focus. That uh, so we had a so we had 
you know, if you went through our library and you could see it physically, if you were paying attention, mm. when you got to the cooking section, there was more shelf space. It was quite apparent there was more shelf space. Well, that wasn't an accident. That wasn't just because some of the librarians like cookbooks. It was because we were... Well, we were, you we were, were working at... And we would, we, would, we would answer interlibrary loans on those books to us. So you might go into your... Uh, you might have gone into your branch of Bankstown Library, as it was then, two separate areas, and you might want a particular cookbook, which they didn't have because it, because it um, might have been a bit more um, uh, specialised than what they carried, and they would go onto a system and see that Canterbury Library have it, and we'd bundle it up, and there was a courier service that would you would get in a few days. You'd be able to go and collect that book from Bankstown Library and, and read it and borrow it for a period. So that explains then that the the Canterbury being the specialty in cookbooks, that explains why the library you were in was was named after Maggie Beer. Um, <laughs> I was I was trying to decide which chef which cook I didn't even want a chef to go with for that. Maggie do you think that's too obscure, Maggie Beer? It was Yes, you got to kind of. I don't think you quite nailed that one. Donna Hay, maybe. <laughs> See, I thought Donna Hay, but Donna Hay's newer. She wouldn't have been around when you were around in the nineties. Um, so, okay, so the, there's the roles. There's the assistant, the technician, the librarian. What, 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 what sort of stuff? As the technician, what was your job? Just putting books back, or so library assistants were, were responsible for serving customers at the with the non information. So just check in, check out, putting um, books uh, back on the shelves, and then sorting the books to make sure the books stayed. Because people would you know take books out and just leave them around, or put them back. The worst thing possible, put them back on the shelf, but in the wrong spot. No, oh, yeah, what it, a nightmare. That could be there literally for. I mean, we had a pro. We you know, within a few days, we we'd have gone over the whole library because it's just on a cycle, like painting the Harbour Bridge. We would start at the one end and. <laughs> And yeah. go right through, just putting things yeah, back in order. Yeah, just like painting the Harbour Bridge. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like it. Well, just as thrilling. <laughs> um, and go back put it in. So that, that's the work of a library uh, assistant. Yep. And then library technician um, would do the lower level, uh, some lower level classification type functions. So they wouldn't be ultimately responsible for the classification of a book, but they might, um, they, they might um, make... Um, Make an initial kind of assessment of, of of a book, and that might be ratified by triaging it. Triage, yeah, yeah. And then some books don't need class. So fiction was done a whole different way. So then library technicians would, would be responsible for looking after those, and then they would handle, they would assist on the information desks, and there'd generally be a librarian paired with a library technician, and and this is why I had a, I had a broad general knowledge uh, back in those days, and that um, that's why my boss. After a sh- period of time, prom- like just um, accept, uh, allowed me to promoted me. I guess you'd call it to library technician, which was a pay rise. Like the, yeah. those were banded bands of pay, so it was actually very. Uh, I was always grateful for that. I was very appreciative of that, uh, and, and was a help to me. I mean, I, I was able to earn more money, and that was based on the fact that my capacity to um, to assist in those information areas where people would come in with queries, um, and library uh, library technicians would help with that, and librarians. And librarians, they were obviously on the high level cataloging, the managing of the reference collection, and the and the helping with the on the information queries. That's kind of how the work was divided up. You must have absolutely like because you're a guy. You you still have a pretty um, phenomenal general knowledge, and I've always put it down to your time working in the library, just reading too much. You're a big reader. Um, yeah, and no, I do. I read a lot. I, I love to read. Um, and I have even, I wasn't a particularly good student in school, but, um, but I did okay on the basis of, 
of um, of just being able to accumulate general knowledge that and then be able to recall it. Just um, for listeners hanging on the edge of their seat in relation to what is the Dewey Decimal Number for Australian history, it is 994. Ah, uh, nailed it. <laughs> uh, I will say this about John. Uh, he did feign... Um, looking at his phone for quite some time while we're in the room, but uh, might be worth double checking that yourselves at home because <laughs> uh, he's a guy who doesn't like to be wrong. With that general knowledge too, you've um, you've now you most people would try and put that to trivia use in trivia. Uh, well, yeah, I, I. But you've uh, banned yourself from trivia nights, haven't you? I I have due to uh, <laughs> due to frustration. The uh, I do go to the odd one, um, but. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I get too worked up. <laughs> I'm a bad sport. Yeah, the, oh, I can't believe the guy that's that weaved through two ten-year-olds to score his <laughs> one and only try. You must. I picture like because I I only knew you post Google. I picture your life would have been amazing pre Google in that uh, it was with your it with was. your general knowledge. It was you were able to just state facts and no one could double check you. So you because while you do have a great general knowledge, you do. Um, no one's I, I do make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. No, I certainly do. Um, misremember, and, and I like to think I qualify things when I'm uh, when I'm answering questions with how uh, how confident I am. But uh, um, yeah, it, like it it meant um, when libraries were something that people relied on for information, it, it, and then to have some, to have be able to have a broad range of general knowledge and be able to recall it readily was very useful. It, uh, it was kind of the first couple of steps in, in fielding, a, back to the example of working on an information desk in a library, the first few steps of fielding the query was to be able to organise the, the, the question in your own mind and then, and then to, to um, unless the library had a specific book addressing that, mm. which, it, you know, most cases it didn't, you needed to go somewhere, you needed to find a range of materials, was then um, being able to fall back on your knowledge of, your general knowledge to fit that into that and then work out where you'd best go to look. And uh, yeah, that was enjoyable. And now uh, we've got the internet. Yeah, so that's right. So I know. Not needed. Is it, do you see that as a as something like? Do you see libraries as going away eventually? Like with because you and I have been talking a little bit about um, AI yeah. coming up, and I know that's one of the topics at the moment you're interested in. Do you see that as like the first step? As basically, I remember there's a quote um, from. Uh, it was not Plato or Socrates, one of the one of the old Greek guys who wore a toga. I uh, <laughs> loved a toga party, but um, basically, where he was concerned well, about they wore robes. But anyway, go on. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone shouts robe, robe, robe. The chant is toga, 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 yeah, my friend. It might be Rome, I suppose. But anyway, keep anyway, going, keep going. Anyway, see, this is what I mean: the general knowledge that just uh, permeates everything he talks about. Um, uh, where it was like, um, basically, the concern. Um, I'm pretty sure it was Socrates. His concern was that um, with uh, when they were starting to start write knowledge down, when they were writing was becoming... He was interested thing. in the classification of knowledge, yep. Yeah, and so they were recording it. And his big concern was that people would rely on the written word and not understand or know the knowledge anymore. They would never hold... They wouldn't hold it in their own brains. Now... Um, we're definitely at, at that stage. And yeah. Even before the, the current information. Like, we're, our capability is enabled to, like... like um, uh, um, work in the environment around us greatly exceeds the knowledge we hold in our own uh, our own minds. Um, and and see, this is this is my thing. Is like, okay, is, are we at risk of that with the internet? And then it occurred to me: the only reason I know that 
is because someone so, wrote it down and put it on the internet. And you read it there. So yeah. Socrates and I, you know, are on the same wavelength, but maybe, maybe it's inconsequential. But like, that, as humans, just to touch on this point, yeah, that, that's what distinguishes us from uh, other animals. That's the the evolutionary burden of creating uh, uh, consciousness and and the ability to manipulate language uh, to the level that we we as humans are able to do. Uh, which far exceeds our, um, our, you know, our closest uh, relative in the animal kingdom. Um, oh, the odd pause there. I was going to say, well, your dad's all right, mate. <laughs> no, our closest relatives in the animal kingdom uh, is, is that very capacity to, to have knowledge and, and, and to share it. So, I mean, if you take a, a hypothetical scenario, it may never have occurred, but uh, I... I may be a mem- member of uh, one clan in the semi-arid um, plains of Africa 200,000 years ago. You uh, may be a, a member of a, another uh, a clan and uh, my clan is, is struggling. We, we haven't, we haven't, uh, our gathering's not going so well and our hunting ha- has been failing. Yep. And I am on a path looking for hunting grounds to improve our luck. And I pass you, and uh, we share the language. I mean, our clan, uh, we, we share the language. Uh, and I might be heading a direction, and, and you can say to me, um, don't bother with that direction. Uh, I've been down there. The hunting is no good. However, I did have some luck over there and point me in a new direction. Mm. Um, that's what – and then then, my, then I thank you, and then I uh, maybe pass you some knowledge that I have about some other issue. But then I'll, uh, I go on, and, and yes, and, and you were correct, and, 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 uh, and my uh, – we were able to we were able to prosper or flourish, as they say. That is uh, that that information, rec- like in that particular case, it isn't actually recorded anywhere mm. because we writing wasn't involved in that transaction, but uh, verbal communication was. That, uh, but in, in some ways too, that's recorded in that. If you, it depends how you look at recording, it's not written down or not. Yeah, it's recorded in, in your memory, but it's recorded in my memory, and then I would then teach my kids that this. This ground's no good. That yeah. ground's better. That yeah. sort of verbal, yeah, yeah, all that. You'd get yeah. Your, yeah, so you would um, uh, you would pass it on to your children. You've passed it on to me. So now my, uh, I go back in my clan. Now, now all continues to, uh, you know, it was on a, it was on a downward trajectory, and now it's kind of been saved. And that uh, that meant that the the human um, human race was able to prosper and flourish as we have. Um, now animals do have memories, and they do they do uh, do the similar kinds of information processing that we do. Um, but no, with nowhere near the level of sophistication and nuance, and then without the capacity to record and um, pass it on. Yes, that, that we so have. yeah, the, the, with like a two tigers us. in the same situation. So one's a little bit hung, going hungry, and one's um, one's uh, struggling. Uh, sorry, one's not. One's not. They don't pass each other in the uh, in the forest and 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 have the same transaction. What they do is. Uh, their way of surviving is that they will um, they're territorial they will, they'll they'll become aggressive but they don't even they're not even entertaining the they don't one tiger isn't thinking oh I better hold on to my knowledge I better yes. let that slip out that's just not even that's not even in the equation that's a it's a whole other mechanism that's going on on there yeah we don't have to experience stuff firsthand to benefit from the knowledge of it so yeah. you've you've had the trial and error yep. or someone even even now like you look at um, just just in terms of just classifications of certain poison berries. Yes. That's something that happened a long time a ago. A long, long time ago. And, and that, that information has been held very closely and, and dearly. And and then the berries that are good to eat 
um, constitute a, a lot of the food we eat, well, the fruit that we eat and continue to eat today, and the ones that we don't. Um, are, either if you live in the city, you probably have no awareness of them, but if you live in areas where they are uh, common from a young age, that's that, that information is passed on. To, you know, don't eat those berries on that tree. Look at this tree. Don't eat these. Don't eat any of them. They're, uh, they're no good for you. Yeah, so... Okay, so now I know you've been, you've been, we've been talking about AI, you and I. So that's that's human. Yep. How humans learn and how our knowledge is shared. The the big AI problem. You've been listening to a lot of Sam Harris recently. Yes, um, <laughs> which is a it's a great podcast. Uh, a little different in style to this podcast, I'd say. A little more intellectual rigor. More, you oh, think? You were thinking the other way. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I know Sam Harris is more surface than me, but uh, yeah. Um, so if you want to hear that, Waking Up with Sam Harris, very good podcast, and you've been getting into that. But the AI stuff you were telling, we, you were talking about now. Sam Harris has this concern uh, with uh, in 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 the growth of the general of general AI. Yes, uh, that he thinks that AI being artificial intelligence, uh, sorry, yeah, artificial intelligence, which is uh, and which he defines as a as an information processing system, uh, which is a good definition, as good a definition as any. So, yep, um, and then. He's well. He didn't identify it. Um, I think a guy called Nick uh, Bostrom, a, a Swedish uh, philosopher, was kind of kind of highlighted a few years ago and captured the the wider imagination with a book uh, called um, Super Intelligence. And then there's a subheading which I forget, but Super Intelligence um, uh, Dangers or something like that. Yes. Um, it uh, Super Intelligence Paths, Dangers, Strategies. Oh, there you go. Anyway, uh, but Sam Harris has, has picked up on this. So Sam Harris's notion is that uh, that it, that general intelligence is an information processing system. Yep. That our information pro- that, our, that our computers, so our, our information technology, our computers is um, is expanding. Yep. So that's like premise number two, and um, premise number anyway. That will lead to ultimately uh, an in- an intelligence system that is vastly superior. To uh, human intelligence. Now we should specify. He was talking about general intelligence. There are, are already computer systems that are superior. So the we computational take, power, the computational power, of, greatly exceeds human human uh, capacity. Just you know, you know, for many years now. For, well, for me, it was the uh, the humble hand calculator uh, when I was at school. Yeah, no, that's right. That's that's been <laughs> with us a long time. Its computational power was uh, yeah. far greater than mine when I was trying to work out uh, long division. Correct, and. Um, so then we, uh, so he's uh, general intelligence is uh, a system that um, uh, can, can learn and adapt and, and and can deal with with problems in a way that would resemble the way humans do is, is a fair way to say whether they're conscious or not is irrelevant. It's just if they do it, uh, and they may be. So I'm not saying they will or won't be, but is irrelevant. Just they do it in processes that are similar to the way that uh, the humans do. Um, that they will uh, reach a point where they're um, uh, they're. Uh, Recursive power to uh, improve themselves, uh, yeah, modify them and improve themselves, will accelerate well beyond the ability of humans to control them, and then they'll um, pose a threat. Yeah, is this what we call? Is that moment where they eclipse us? Is that what they talk about the singularity, or is that something no, different? The singularity is something different. Um, I think it's just called the, the problem. They just call it the problem of superintelligence, what we're talking about. The singularity, I think, is a merging of, of human and machine intelligence. So human intelligence and machine intelligence into a um, into an, another form of superintelligence, which I think has some other problems, but um, it's a different... It, I mean, it's related, but a different 
different okay. concept. So let's let's stay then on the, the problem of super intelligence. Problem of super intelligence. So the two. I've, I've just actually watched Batman versus Superman, so I'm in the philosophical mind of the problem dealing with things with the, the problems of super. Um, <laughs> I think I kind of I didn't hadn't yeah, previously thought of that, but it is a related uh, yeah, issue. No, don't worry, mate. I'm I'm a serious philosopher. Yeah, <laughs> good on you. Yes, I, uh, and I have problems with my super. I uh, need a lot more of it. <laughs> uh, we're all in that boat. Yeah. Um, Especially if this whole, uh, you know, they're going to be able to graft my consciousness onto a machine and I'm going to live forever. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to be able to afford that. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's another thing. So, you know, um, the two... The two problems that that are highlighted, one is I think very realistic. I think already upon us, yeah. And that is that um, that basically this computational power will be direct, will be you know directed at the economy and will render a lot of human uh, intellectual and and physical labour irrelevant. Oh, I can't wait for that. Yeah, so that, that's the appeal. But then, and, and that, but and that the, is the, a bright future. But but then, without actually thinking about how you deal with that economically. Uh, that brings in this wealth disparity problem, which we already, which has always existed, yep. and we certainly haven't solved. And, and you know, some people argue is worse now than than um, that it's ever been. Um, so that the potential I don't know about ever been, but it's pretty yeah, yeah, bad. It's pretty bad now. Um, so the potential of rendering uh, intellectual and physical labour kind of largely irrelevant means that that wealth will be concentrated in increasingly smaller number of people. And then, and then we'll have, and then that will be intended kind of social problems that will come for. Yeah. Now that problem of super AI, I think, is real. And as I said, you don't need super intelligence to um, to get that. I think we already have that. I think um, it was observed in the just with the automation of, of vehicle manufacturing that was observed in the the nineteen um, in the nineteen fifties. There's a uh, a US uh, U, uh, union uh, official by the name of uh, uh, Walter Ruther. Who uh, told, a, told yeah. kind of told a conference that he'd had a conversation, whether whether he did actually have this conversation or not. But he but he at a conference he relayed an anecdote that uh, that he'd had just had a uh, conversation. He was being shown around a Ford plant by a Ford executive, and yep. he just got in a new uh, where ro- robotics had been introduced in a significant level, and the Ford executive had kind of gleefully pointed at the robots and said, "How are you going to get union fees from from these guys?" And then uh, Ruther has has replied, uh, "Well, how are you going to sell them Fords?" Um, and that is uh, the uh, the problem of um, that is that is an indicator that people were already aware of the problem of when as you render labour, uh, well, that, in that case that was physical labour, but but in the future it's going to be intellectual labour as well. Uh, and they're all it's you know, it's all the way we we, we it's all the way we live our lives. Yeah, you know, some. Doesn't doesn't matter which kind of employment you're in. Uh, it's just that intellectual labour is going to be more robust. We'll, we might say in the, in the modern economy, whereas the physical labour is uh, certainly in manufacturing has been um, well. The first step has been vulnerable. Well, the first step of technology is to to automate. Like automating, there's a big difference between automating a process on a on a production an assembly line. line or a production line um, to uh, automating the. Um, Analysis of economic analysis, for yeah. example, or uh, you yeah. know the work of an actuary, yes. and even now I think you'd, if you you'd probably if you talk to actuaries and talk to them about how much they're well, their model. So at the moment, so super intelligence hasn't replaced them, but it, it's it's in their field. Not well, super intelligence hasn't been invented, but um, the increase in computational power hasn't replaced them. But computational power is in their field, so their models will have been over the last um, yeah, well since the computer era, so over the last say fifty years, would have been getting increasingly 
complex and sophisticated because they've been able to um, bring more computer power to bear. Again, the climate change scientists who um, collect data and then model the future, their models have been getting more complex and more sophisticated because they've been able to apply more computer power to it. So that's not, in a way, that's not what we're talking about, but we're talking about the time when the actuary or the, or the climate change or anyone in these fields, it's not that they're uh, bringing computer power to bear on their models. It's no, the when, computers when it begins, the, the, the point where they're not needed to bring because the computer is generating the model. Yes, and that and that's a. I think that's a a, a realistic step in. Well, it's coming. Yeah, we don't. No one knows the timeline, but um, but information processing technology is um, but in, yeah, it, improving every year, and there is just a, there is a. A, a fine, there's a point when it will reach a stage where uh, where it's capable of this kind of what they call the general intelligence. And it's interesting, and like that's going to be in, in terms of just the economic problem. Like like you said, we've seen the economic with um with semi skilled or unskilled labour with what happened in the manufacturing. So that's going to extend out, and we have you know we have many um you know many underemployed people in Australia. We have five hundred thousand unemployed people in Australia. Um, those numbers we're now comfortable. I'm not comfortable. And I don't think you are either. But, but Australia society seems comfortable with those figures. Um, now, as computer power is bought to make manufacturing even more efficient, then those numbers will grow. But then, as, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be hard. Like all of a sudden, you're going to be dealing with people um, who have been retrenched uh, and replaced by from what they call professional kind of yeah, level with jobs. Guys with hex debts are going to all of a sudden be out. Exactly. Of, that's a good. And that's that's a real um, that that for me is a real issue for looking at you know watching your kids. And we'll um, see that we'll see that before or possibly because we don't know the timeline. If, if if super intelligence emerges quicker than I'm anticipating, then we'll. But we'll see that before because uh, already I think you're seeing around the fringes uh, certain types of um, professional work is is going to uh, being sent offshore to to cheaper labour. In invertebrate labour, but now now professional labour, yeah, uh, cheaper labour um, overseas. So that will just that will that will give us an indication of what's to come. Now that's easily remedied because politically, because the government could could enact a law to say that kind of labour can't be shipped off law for arguments. I'm not saying that's going to a policy that will come in. But that's the way it can be fixed. But what if it's well, not being it's shipped off? So that's certainly sure. not. Um not uh, inconceivable. Inconceivable too, especially with the way, like you look at the we we're joking about Trump earlier. Yeah, yeah. That taking that um, all the all the weirdness. I thought we were going to say his name, but yeah, we were tangentially. Oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, yeah he's litigious too. Shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, but the, the, there is a there's a real stir of protectionism in his economic outlook. Well, he's a big symptom of what, he's a symptom of what we're talking about. So he's a buffoon and a con man. I, I think there's. Very few people. Um, He's the P.T. Barnum of uh, American politics. American politics, and you know, and he, and he offers no real solution. In fact, he offers he, he really probably, probably offers a whole host of things that are counterproductive. Yeah, but that he can get to where he. There are many many factors, but the the factor that that I believe contributed to, to his being able to get into the, to the situation where he's the president of the United States is. People's confusion about these type of things we're talking not not no regard to, to super intelligence. It's back to the the economic impact of it, which is and um, they've been the the impact the economic impact of globalization and globalization um, 
definitely expand uh, expands growth. Isn't it? Yeah, America is and wealth and wealth it expands both of those, and that's what it was. That's what they said it would do, and that's in fact what it's done. So they weren't wrong about that. Where globalization is a problem is how that wealth, that uh, how that wealth and um, and growth is shared and distributed, and while um, it hasn't been like a complete disaster, like you know, there's still people earning at all different areas of the economy. It's been far from ideal. So it's not a case of it's been terrible. It's been far from ideal, and it's been far from ideal for from a, a long time. At least I'd say the early seventies, possibly it began, um, and we've had. There's just now a big enough pool of people that are uncomfortable in the economy that we've um, we've built, and particularly in America, which which some would might say is further down the track. Yep. Um, that are uncomfortable in that economy, and so they they uh, uh, kind of lash out, and they or they or they look for solutions, but then there aren't any, there isn't anyone kind of speaking their language in inverted commas, so they're not hearing solutions. Well, essentially, the the solutions aren't. Simple. They're, exactly. They're yeah. going to be... Incredibly complex. Incredibly complex. And there's different theories on them. But now So trying to tell the difference between yeah. two complex theories or you've got some guy who just says he's going to... So, so with it. Trump, Trump has the hardcore of the um, Republican base. And I'm not saying for a second that those people took these issues in, into account when they were, um, when they were choosing how they would, uh, uh, how they would vote. They, they voted on partisan lines. But then, what swung him, and then, and then the same on the Democrat side. So, what what enabled him then to get the next? Uh, what enabled him to get there in the first place through a process that should have weeded someone like him out? And then, what having got there, what enabled him to win the general election? Uh, and that was the extra, the extra people that are in this world of, of uh, confusion and, and dissatisfaction with how. Well, it's a it's a protest against the yeah, and he's he. But they don't, it's not just a random protest. He actually channeled it. I believe. Yes, he channeled it towards himself. Now I'm I'm just but as a con man, I'm going to steer the conversation away from this again because I know I've had a couple of people give me a little bit of feedback. They don't like the politics talk on oh. this particular podcast, which sorry. is fine. It was organic and it's fine. I'm just sorry picturing. I know I happen to know Justin, uh, who uh, is a guy I know. Um, will play this uh, while he's driving Uber around and um, plays the podcast uh, with the passengers. So I don't want to get him a, a three-star rating or a, in, a, in any discussion. So uh, a big thank that... you, Justin, for doing that. But um, so let's go back to the the AI thing now. Oh, the, so, so, but, the interesting part of the AI thing. The, that's the economy side we've spoken about. Let's say we've yes. addressed that. And that's real. And I think that's actually already happening, not even through AI, but AI is only going to accelerate that. Yeah, but the, let's get to the, the sexier end of the debate. So then there's and a whole other the proposition fear that, of the general intelligence. Yes. And that is that it is a doomsday scenario where... Yeah, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. So the... Now, Sam Harris, um, he, he would... Uh, he says that... Um, basically, he compares. Like, he has an analogy of comparing us to ants. Right? We've got no malice towards ants. Um, In fact, often we might go out of our way not to not to interact with them. Yes. Um, but if we're in a situation where our we're in interest, the way, yeah, where our interests and their interests are in conflict, we'll annihilate them. We'll annihilate them. Uh, and I've done that in my kitchen. Right. <laughs> now today. Today. Yes. Exactly. And so the his his. Analogy then puts the computers, this this theoretical uh, superintelligence, yes, um, in the um, 
in the place of uh, what would be the humans and us in the place of what, what are the ants. Yes. You don't buy into that, do you? Well, yeah, so in, so the fear, I guess, would be that uh, either um, that uh, either our existence would be, or Super AI's goals would be inimical, inimical to human existence yep. at, be- at worst, or at best, uh, that they would be uninterested in our ongoing, uh, ongoing existence. And that whatever their goal was uh, would um, so they give like these scenarios, and I think one I, I've read about is if you um, say you are asked it to solve some complex mathematical theorem that hasn't been solved yet, yeah, and say it, it was particularly difficult, this um, this computer's goal would be to solve this problem, and it would set about doing it, and then it would say I don't have enough computer power, and because it's uh, uh, it's self improve, it's able to self improve, it would then start devoting more and more resources to solving that problem. And if it was, say, still unsolvable, more and more, until it gets to the point where it's taken all the resources and humanity, um, uh, including humanity, so we're kind of extinguished in the, in the, uh, in the uh, ongoing pursuit of solving this. Uh, That's a this tough partic- maths question. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, I'm not a mathematician, but uh, um, it, uh, I believe such problems exist. Uh, you're, you were, you are, you do fancy yourself, a, you're a son of a math teacher and uh, you've <laughs> told me on many occasions. That, That's what uh, I fancy myself as, <laughs> the son of a maths teacher. <laughs> Is, are there such theorems? Presumably there are. I'd, I'd imagine so. Like I, I don't know, the last theorem took centuries. Am, yes. I, am I embarrassing myself here to solve? Uh, yeah, I can't. I, I would decade. We can say yeah, many, yeah. many decades. Uh, once again, I like Fermat. Um, I, I know his estate is particularly litigious, and <laughs> <laughs> I think we're safe there. Yeah. Um, but, not uh, podcast fans, but that, that's the enough. scenario. So that whatever the goal of the superintelligence becomes, uh, humans are, are brushed by by the wayside. Yes. So, uh, I'm not so afraid of that because we'd have to a. Um, you know, we'd have to be incredibly stupid to give a superintelligence the uh, control of our resources and then give it a potentially uh, resource-absorbing absorbing problem. Um, yeah, that is that is. Just seems really, you know, hey, hey, Andrew, I've just invented this superintelligence, which uh, if it's not smart enough to to answer the problem while I've set it, it will take more resources and rebuild itself to be even smarter and then and solve it. And, and I, now oh, I'm going to give it. I've got a task for it. Yeah, and next Compose to impossible, the ma- perfect tweet. <laughs> Ironically, Twitter falls by the wayside in this. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would. So it achieves it, but it's only got one follower. Yeah, it's and, and that person follows like ten thousand people, so misses the tweet completely. <laughs> All right, <laughs> but that um, no, well, that I mean, that is so. I, th- I think th- those scenarios aren't as persuasive, and I, I think um, comparing computational power. To I think a lot of things are um, a lot of issues are conf- kind of brought in together and conflated there to get to that problem, which is that you you not only build a super intelligence, you build a super intelligence that has ultimate control over all of Earth resources. Mm. So I just don't think that that's even possible. We don't even have a human corporation that is responsible, and there are many that want that. You know, and there have been regimes in the world in history that have wanted that, and they've never they've got nowhere near close. And just because your computational power is growing exponentially, it does have a finite limit. It has a finite limit on the amount of resources available to put into it. And then, again, it's, I don't think computational power will be the limit of, of general intelligence. I think the um, general intelligence is, in, is heavily um, dependent upon its 
um, the way it, it engages with the uh, the world around, the way it absorbs information. Yeah, and that that will be a limiting. So yes, well, let's say for argument's sake, the computational power just continues to expand, expand, expand. It's still going to be limited by the amount of um, data it can it can input. So you know, we, we as humans, we do it through our senses, through our you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching. Um, the um, uh, computer will have whatever it has, it'll versions of that presumably, and then and then probably direct interfaces into uh, into the World Wide Web. So then, so then people hypothesize, well, it's so smart that it will then manipulate us and those things. And I don't find that as persuasive. I, I mean, I think I be something you'd have to be cautious about. So I'm not I saying, think though, but the, once again, there's my and my thing with this is that okay, it could potentially it would have it may have the power to manipulate us. Yeah, but once again, you, you to what end? So if it's manipulating us, then then it becomes dependent on it. My case, so I'm the victim. I'm the one that's manipulated to to help it take over the world. Yeah, I'm where the rubber meets the road. So it's now dependent on my capacity to enact its, you know, uh, it's a it's it's ability to take over the world. Mm. Um, and yeah, you know, I just there's many many hurdles that would be before it. Yeah. I, th- I think it's an interesting... It's an interesting theoretical problem. Theoretical problem. And, uh, and I think there's I think probably a, def- a bunch of ethical questions that jump up in between now and when we yeah. hit the superintelligence. But it's a distraction from the economic problem, which I think is the real... Uh, the potential economic problems, which I think is, is a real issue that should be absorbed. Not just, and not just to economic Harris, problems too, by the way. It's like, think about... Just even if you were to say in the um, the totally um, utopian view of it, like okay, work is no longer required for humans, and um, and we've managed to solve this income disparity thing, the problem of boredom amongst humans is is terrible. It could, uh, just the increase in the number of people doing podcasts, <laughs> would, <laughs> writing think, blogs. Oh, it's going to everyone would be a YouTuber. Yeah, exactly. There'd be seven point five billion YouTubers. Each with uh, each with one follower, which is themselves. Yeah. <laughs> Who's consuming? Everyone's <laughs> producing. Nah, nightmare. Anyway. Nightmare scenario. Now, there are problems around that, and uh, they're difficult. They're difficult as well. Um, I, I think, as humans, we like to be engaged. And I mate. I, and, I, but there's a there's a why. Like we tend to look at some people and say, "Oh, they're not engaged. I'm engaged." But that's merely a judgment. That's not a. That's not reality. Those people that we look at and think, "Oh, they're not engaged with 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 what I'm," that's because they're engaged in a whole lot of things that we don't don't recognise. It generally humans want to be engaged in some form of activity. Not, I'm, not I'm, that all humans will recognise that activity as equally meaningful. I'm a big believer that we need that for any um, muscle in your body, you need resistance. Yeah. So if if you take take uh, give take humans and um, lose the need for uh, lose the need for um, for us to uh, say think, you take all our day to day thinking away from us, and and you see this with elderly relatives who are quite functional. Um, and this is probably a bad analogy, but I, I remember when my, my I know grandmother, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, my grandmother was um, very functional, very. Uh, very together she um she basically cared for my my grandfather who had dementia uh she fell broke a hip um was unable to do that and within six months her own mental capacity had diminished so much because it wasn't being challenged daily with now i'm no um uh what are the, what are the doctors for um uh jerry Geronto- gerontologist gerontologist or something like that. I, I, I don't know 
But um, and that's purely. I, I, I've seen that. I, I have a, an early uncle who was a farmer his his whole um uh, life. He uh, was a a strong, uh, robust man physically and a, and, a, and a mentally engaging and entertaining fellow. And he, um, this is in the last few years, he retired, but he, but fortunately for him, uh, he retired when he was about uh, 70 or 65 in, in that range. And it'll he, be early he, by the time it comes around to me retiring, yeah, by yes. the way. He, he, he bought a small property with, with, uh, with my aunt, but it was adjacent to uh, another larger property that was, that, uh, was owned by some people that um, needed someone to help manage it, and, and he took that role on. Mm. So then he worked. So and it was less responsibility, less arduous, but it was still the kind of work he knew, and he was still that. And I, um, some physical decline. It was naturally that part of the age, but there was some physical decline, and 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 not so much mental decline, but physical decline was evident. But but it was modest, and um, that 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 went on uh, for another uh, uh, until he was about eighty five. I think he was still even at eighty five. He was still doing it. So this is a this is an eighty five year old man who's still um, like climbing over fences and, and shutting gates and chasing cows into paddocks and, you know, dragging... None of which you should have been doing, by the way. <laughs> dragging bags of things about the place. Just that kind of... If, oh, uh, dragging bags of things. You make him sound like he's a burglar. Jumping fences, no, filling bags and stuff. But yeah, that just... Still breaking into houses well into his 80s. <laughs> but just these, these kind of activities. Yep. And... But then the, the owners of this property sold it and, and it was bought by someone else and uh, he was no longer required. They, um, a different management regime was put in place. And exactly, uh, so he didn't have an injury. He just had a change in circumstances. But uh, he, he's still alive now, but he's, he's in his uh, early 90s. But, um, but his, and, and that would have, I know that would have happened. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's yeah. all the triple that. He was aging. And, and but you can see an acceleration. But it, acceler- it accelerated. Like, I, I think I went a, a 10 month, to twelve month period with it without seeing him, which because he lives in the country, I live in the city, but um, it was it was a staggering change, and and that's what worries me is that it, like the idea of a human race without purpose. Like, yeah, people need purpose. You need yeah. task. You need to be. And as much as we all enjoy a holiday, if that was your, the only aspect so of your people, life, people unemployed people in housing estates are what you're saying. I think is aren't thriving today. We don't need to go to the future to look at that. Mm. Those people aren't, or many of them, some, some are. But you, if you look at the people who are thriving, they probably have a purpose. They probably like have some uh, charity they're involved in, or some artistic endeavor, or uh, like I said, it, if something I don't even, I don't even. I, th- I think of, a better example. Do. I think a better example is like if we, we take the utopian view of it, because there's arguments to be made about the the certain. Um, the, the the some of the other cultural factors going in and the the um that with in in the if you look at the lower socioeconomic end, end um but just look at the guys that have um that basically people born into the the super rich who never have to work or never have a purpose and and how um common yeah, the daughter we won't name her but the daughter of a former premier who a life yes. of great privilege but uh, basically life resembles um the the, those amongst the poorest of us, and, and with all the yeah. intended social problems of, of that, um, we now we don't know her. I don't pretend to know her life story. I don't know what's involved there, but possibly something along the lines. Your uh, yeah, the, the 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 lack of resistance to life, the lack of having to get up and be somewhere in the morning, or even if you're you know yeah. even doing comedy, you got to be somewhere at night. Like yeah, yeah that, it doesn't matter. Yeah, again, like I where said, you need what, to be. What, what is one person's engagement and activity may not be recognisable to it. So I'm not saying when you're just a judgment of look uh, I'm saying where no form of engagement exists yes yeah, yeah. where basically we're on a spaceship like Wally yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. spaceship living that's living a very prescient uh, science fiction film uh, like uh, enjoyed by children uh, 
the world over, possibly should have been uh, pondered more closely by, uh, by adults as well. Well, I think that might bring us to uh, about time. We've gone a little bit over. Did I answer your question? Now I can't even remember what the question was. I think I didn't. No, you, you, I, think we, I think we covered the, the, the topic. We can come back to AI at any point. Um, <laughs> uh, I, look, personally... Uh, Maybe we're just, too late, according to some of the fear mongers on Reddit. I want to be, yeah. Look, I want <laughs> to be too late. on record saying I welcome... Uh, <laughs> our overlord and master. Our overlords. Uh, Skynet is good. Um, <laughs> thanks very much for dropping by, John. We'll do this again. It was a pleasure. Cheers, mate. Bye.